So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. I like podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. And I'm guessing because you're listening to me right now, you're also a fan of the medium. So we're asking for a little bit of help from you for this holiday season. And don't worry, it won't cost you a thing. Podcasting is still a pretty tiny industry. And to get it to grow and to get creators the support that they deserve, we need to get more people listening. And honestly, the biggest impediment to that is that so many people just don't know how podcasts even work. I can guarantee you that there's someone close to you that would get a lot out of podcasts, but they don't quite know how to download it or subscribe or do all of those kinds of things. Whether it's a parent, your grandparents, that weird guy who you're told to call uncle at family get-togethers but is definitely not actually related to you, there are so many people who would benefit. And we hope that when you're all under one roof over the holidays, you take one of them aside, grab their phone, and show them a podcasting app. Subscribe them to something you think that they'll like. It doesn't have to be Commons. There are so many great shows out there. And if you do that and you take a picture of you doing just that, tweet it to us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S, I will personally send a video thanking them. Why would they want that? I'm not actually totally sure. But what I can guarantee you is that's what I'll do. So thanks again for listening, and let's help more people find the podcasts that they'll love. I first heard about Prince Edward Island when I was five years old, and my father read Anne of Green Gables to my sister and to me. I thought, this is the most beautiful place. Can it really be real? It was what I expected, and it was more. This is the end of the world and the beginning of the world. All things are here. Prince Edward Island. It's the birthplace of Canada, the million-acre farm. Or to folks who live there, just the island. For the rest of us, it conjures images of oysters and red sand beaches. Maybe you'll start to hum a bit of a Stompin' Tom Connors tune. But the spud from the bright red mud, rolling down a highway smiling. The spuds are big on the back of Bud's rig. They're from Prince Edward Island. They're from Prince Edward Island. And of course, you'll picture a young orphan girl with braided red hair who has adored the world over. Who are you? 
My name is Anne Shirley Cuthbert, and please be sure to spell Anne with an E. But of course, PEI is far more than potatoes and Anne of Green Gables. It's a province co-equal in the Federation with Ontario or Alberta or Quebec. And it's a place with some serious persistent issues. PEI is not only the smallest province, it's always been among the poorest. I mean, we have the lowest wages. We have, the, we have amongst the lowest uh, average incomes. Young people f- leave this province in incredible numbers. That's Stu Neatby, a reporter for the Charlottetown Guardian. Because of those challenges, politicians in PEI are always on the hunt for that magic bullet, that one big game-changing idea. And typically it's been sort of the tech industry that provinces like PEI try to attract. I mean, geez, when I was growing up, it was uh, call centers. A decade ago, a PEI government had an entirely new idea. What if the island could become Canada's center for online gambling? The pursuit of that idea turned into an almost strange mania that gripped much of the province for years and led to a decades-long scandal that continues to engulf PEI to this day. Now, depending on who you believe, it's either the story of a shady out-of-towner who sells a bill of goods to innocent partners and investors, or it's a tale of an entrenched political class who use their extraordinary powers to try to enrich themselves at the expense of the rest of the country. PEI is a political paradox. Though it has about as many people as a mid-sized town, it has the powers of a sovereign state. A tiny number of legislators and officials control the levers of power, making new laws and leading institutions. But with great power comes great responsibility. And when it comes to PEI's harebrained scheme to turn the province into an online gambling capital, that responsibility was totally abdicated. The government ran secretive committees with outside interests funded with off-the-books money. Contracts and promises of big paydays were handed out like candy without any due diligence. The watchdogs were asleep at their posts as conflicts of interest ran amok. Public records disappeared or were destroyed. But ten years after this whole mess began, one question remains. Was it malicious? Or was it just incompetence? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. In 2007, the PEI Liberal Party swept into power. Voters on Prince Edward Island opted for major change tonight, throwing out three-time Conservative Premier Pat Binns and handing Liberal Robert Giz a substantial majority. Giz, only 33 years old and the son of a former premier, tapped a man named Wes Sheridan to be his finance minister. And the next year, Sheridan put out a report about gaming. The internet had fully arrived, and it was threatening the province's revenue from lotteries and racetracks. For PEI, this was a big problem. PEI's already a have-not province. Losing any revenue at all is going to be a big deal. But it wasn't too long until someone came along with a possible solution. Don McKenzie, the leader of PEI's Mi'kmaq Confederacy, approached the finance minister's office with an idea. 
What if they could turn PEI into Canada's hub for online gambling? Around a third of Indigenous people in PEI live in poverty. In other provinces, First Nations can make money by hosting casinos on their land. But PEI is just too small to make that work. But what if they could turn PEI into Canada's hub for online gambling? Those servers have to go somewhere after all, and someone needs to do the regulating. So why shouldn't it be PEI? A plan started to come together. Well, technically, it was two plans. The first involved convincing all the other provinces to make PEI Canada's e-gaming hub, provincial governments of jurisdiction over gambling, so PEI would need their buy-in for this plan to go forward. But Canadian provinces don't exactly get along and are loath to give up any of their powers. Why would Saskatchewan or Quebec even want PEI to run their e-gaming? So, of course, there was a plan B. And it came with a twist. Somewhere along the line, someone gets the idea, well, what if we put the online gambling servers on the Mi'kmaq land? Because then we can have the uh, indigenous communities uh, declare their sovereignty rights. That's Robin Doolittle, an investigative reporter with The Globe and Mail. In some ways, it was a tried and tested idea. The Mohawks of Ganawake in Quebec have been running e-gaming operations for a decade. Over the years, even though elements of organized crime have been found to be profiting from it, the police have declined to shut it down. And the RCMP investigated them and ultimately decided it's, it's not worth kicking up this big sovereignty debate. So everyone kind of just turns a blind eye. But the difference is important. In Quebec, the Mohawks of Kahnawake were running e-gaming on their own. In PEI, the Mi'kmaq and the province would be teaming up. In other words, if the other provinces decided not to play ball, PEI could just go through with the plan anyways. So PEI is thinking, well, what if we put the servers on the Mi'kmaq land and then we'll give them a cut of this? It's win-win-win for them. And when you think about it, it's nuts because it's a province of Canada trying to figure out ways to circumvent the Canadian criminal code. And it was Finance Minister Wes Sheridan that took the lead. Well, he was the quarterback. I mean, he seems to have been the guy as early as 2008 who prepared a report on the whole idea of establishing PEI as a regulatory hub for online gaming. This was his baby. The Finance Minister and the head of the Mi'kmaq Confederacy began to meet about the project. And they eventually set up a committee. But strangely, the committee was led by an outside law firm, It's kept secret, and it's funded with at least $1.5 million of off-the-books money from the provincial government. But to make the plan work, they needed to find a partner, a company that could provide the infrastructure for this venture. And as luck may have it, at that exact time, a man was visiting PEI who could do just that. It started with love. Paul Maines' cousin was getting married, and he wanted to get to know his cousin's fiance before they became family. So one day in 2010, they all got together at the Pilot House, a cozy restaurant in Charlottetown. Now, Maines is a protective guy, but he and the fiance, Garth Jenkins, found they were getting along pretty well. Both of them were businessmen, so the conversation quickly became professional. Now, Maines, he's a deal maker and a charming one at that. 
Paul Maines, it's hard to describe him. He's a big guy, like a football player. That's because he was a football player. He'd been a lineman back in the day, even playing for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the 1990s. Like super gregarious and like the kind of guy that like you sit across from at a table and he's like your best friend. And like you can totally imagine being like, yeah, I'm going to buy something from this guy. Like I totally believe him. I'm excited about what he's saying. And what he was selling these days was a company called Capital Markets Technologies. CMT, as it was known, had one big asset a stake in a British company called Simplex that had access to SWIFT, the system through which money is moved around the globe. In other words, they had the ability to turn a place like PEI into a globally connected financial hub. Garth Jenkins, the fiancé, got excited by the idea, and he brought in his cousin, Paul Jenkins. Now, on paper, Paul Jenkins doesn't seem like much of a power player, even by PEI standards. Well, I don't think he was actually, you know, a major figure politically. Um, I mean, he's never run for office. He had he had connections, obviously, to the PI Liberal Party. But I mean, a, a lot of people have connections to the PI Liberal Party. I mean, he was a business owner, uh, runs a pharmacy, um, appears to have been somebody who did relatively well for himself. But Jenkins used his connections to the Liberal Party to start to introduce Paul Maines to PEI's movers and shakers. The pitch was simple. Bring Simplex's technology to the island and transform PEI into a financial center that would provide jobs and government revenue. And people were interested. It wasn't like I was meeting uh, a guy named, you know, Tommy Nonos. You know, it was, it was the Minister of Finance. It was the Chief of Staff. I traveled with the Chief of Staff to the Premier. That is the man himself, Paul Maines, who would go on to be one of the most controversial people in PEI. As Maines was making the rounds, Jenkins told him that the best way to do business on the island was to set up a subsidiary in PEI for his company and recruit local investors. The provincial government also put together a brochure to try to entice CMT to work on this project. Included was a line that advised CMT that most companies set up local subsidiaries and then flow their money offshore to limit taxation. In other words, the provincial government of PEI was giving advice to a private company on how to avoid paying Canadian taxes. CMT set up a subsidiary. Now, the sole director of that subsidiary company was Paul Jenkins, the well-connected pharmacist. But today, Jenkins denies knowing that he was the only director of this company. around $100,000 of his own money, and word started to spread around the island. There is this company who's going to turn PEI into a financial hub. The time to invest is now. A prominent hotelier put in $50,000. A Charlottetown lawyer, Bill Dow, who had been Premier Giz's campaign manager and friend for 25 years, invested $10,000. He would later go on to advise the government on a related deal while he was still an investor he says he backed out of that role when he realized the conflict. And ironically enough, PEI's conflict of interest commissioner even got in on the game himself. The guy on the island, the, the public official on the island whose job it is to investigate conflict of interest, invested $15,000 in this. There is a belief in PEI that conflicts of interest are almost impossible to avoid. 
the the nature of a really small government, a small population where the six degrees of separation that we would talk about is more like two degrees of separation. Everybody knows each other. And how does I, I think it's just assumed that 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 kind of those kind of issues, which I think in any other province would be viewed as serious conflicts of interest, are just kind of par for the course. You know, they're things that you can't really avoid. As investors are lining up, CMT continues to talk to the government about this financial hub. Paul Jenkins introduces Paul Maines to the premier's chief of staff, a man named Chris LeClaire. Maines has claimed in an affidavit that he was asked to help Chris LeClaire recruit companies to the island using his connections to Bay Street. And in return, he claims that Chris LeClaire promised him that CMT would be compensated. That's when, according to Paul Maines, he was told about the e-gaming plan. Up until now, Maines and CMT had only been working on this financial hub idea. They didn't know the government was also secretly trying to turn PEI into an online gambling center. Those two plans were colliding, and Paul Maines was now one of only a handful of people who knew about the secret e-gaming committee. But all of a sudden, things started to make sense to Maines. The financial hub and the e-gaming hub could work together. What's significant about that moment is that the government, uh, when this all went south, like very much said we had nothing to do with Paul Maines or CMT. They very much said like he was a rogue actor. And Paul Maines was saying the government very much included me in this and I thought I was working for them. And Maines did eventually help convince Virgin Gaming to move a number of jobs to PEI. With everything looking like it was in place, a number of people from CMT, including Paul Jenkins, attended a swanky fundraiser for the premier. In the days after, people started to make some strange investments. To understand why these investments are so strange, you'll need a little bit of context. CMT wasn't itself listed on the stock market. So to get onto the stock market, they planned to take over a company called Revolutions Technologies. RevTech did absolutely nothing, but they had a stock market listing. When that acquisition went through, RevTech would go from being worthless to something quite valuable. After this big dinner, Paul Jenkins buys $30,000 in Revolution Technologies shares, a company that does nothing. That was in addition to $15,000 of shares he already held. And he wasn't the only person to invest in RevTech. So you have the Premier's Chief of Staff, Chris LeClaire, and you have his wife, Christine DePratt. And after this big gala, the wife of the Premier's Chief of Staff sends a fax uh, to RevTech's lawyer wanting to make a $1,500 investment in this company that isn't doing anything, except for the fact that it's about to theoretically be bought up by CMT, which is involved in this theoretically extremely lucrative, illegal online gambling plan. It's illegal in Canada to buy or sell stocks if you have advanced knowledge that something like a takeover is going to happen. 
while an Auditor General's report on e-gaming found that the investment gave the appearance of a conflict of interest. Neither Christine DePratt or Chris LeClaire have been accused of insider trading or any other wrongdoing. In an email to the Globe and Mail, LeClaire said they made the investment, quote, because we heard it was a company that could be used for a variety of purposes, including financial services. And he said that if the investment had ever posed a potential conflict of interest, they would have given up any money they made. But just as everyone was getting in on the gold rush, things were about to fall apart. There had always been two plans for e-gaming. Either convince the other provinces to make PEI Canada's online gambling hub, or else use the Mi'kmaq Confederacy to circumvent Canada's criminal code and bulldoze the plan through unilaterally. And anyone who knows anything about Canada shouldn't be surprised that the first option fell through. So PEI seemed primed to move forward on Plan B, use an Indigenous nation's sovereignty to circumvent the criminal law. Some provincial officials maintained that PEI would only play a supporting role to the Mi'kmaq, but the vast majority of revenues, that's 95%, would have gone to the province, not to the Mi'kmaq. Just as they were getting ready to move forward, Plan B also fell apart. A lawyer for the Secret Gaming Committee, Kevin Kiley, got a legal opinion from an Indigenous law expert. It wasn't that Plan B was deemed to be illegal. It was that uh, they would likely face a constitutional challenge. So another province could have taken them to court. And they didn't want to do that. (laughs) And, And that's all we know. The Mi'kmaq dropped out. But people within the PEI government didn't give up on making something out of this partnership with CMT. The dreams just wouldn't die. The politicians still needed that magic key, that one industry that would change the equation for the province. So even though e-gaming was dead, the province continued to work with CMT on two other ventures, turning PEI into a financial center to process international transactions and a loyalty card program for tourists. But while that moved forward everything would be overturned by one of the most powerful forces in any small community. Gossip. Rumors fly fast in PEI. I remember I landed on PEI on the plane, and by the time I got to the hotel, I had emails saying, I hear you're here. Like, people knew a Globe and Mail reporter had left the airport and was checking in to the hotel. And some people had started to Google Paul Maines. And they found things that were concerning. Back in the early 2000s, Maines had worked at J.P. Morgan in New York City. Allegations were made against Maines at the time by the New York Stock Exchange that he moved around clients' money without their permission and hid those transactions. Maines didn't participate with the investigation, and the allegations didn't go any further. And according to Maines, nothing nefarious took place. It's very expensive to hire a lawyer. At the time, the Canadian dollar was at 1.4, right? You know, hiring a U.S. lawyer to do that over something this issue. Now, the biggest issue you have to understand, in 2001, the World Trade Center collapsed. But the firm I was at had all the records there. So I had no backup. I had nothing to show up with. I had nothing to argue with. But people in PEI, who had previously been so enthusiastic about the company, became suspicious that maybe... CMT was just a fraud. 
And most damaging of all, a rumor started to fly around the island that Mains and CMT had stolen money from a dying woman with cancer. There is no woman with cancer. That is not true. I, like, chased that lead down to the end. (laughs) The only reason we got involved in this story is because someone heard that gossip and emailed, and I believe they framed it as, like, this is gossip. I don't know what's true or not. There's this, you know, mysterious woman with cancer who's been swindled out of her money. Um, Can someone look into this? Even though that woman didn't exist, people in the investment community became concerned and relayed those concerns to the Securities Commission. Months later, the PEI Securities Commission launched a case against CMT. It was the very first case in the history of that institution. On the docket, it's case 001. CMT eventually settled for $15,000 for taking money from non-accredited investors. But Maine says that no investors lost any money on the deal. Around the same time, the PEI government started to sour on Maine's and CMT. According to a statement of claim in a lawsuit that CMT is bringing against the PEI government and many others, PEI tried to cut CMT out of the process entirely and bring in a new company to handle the financial hub. That's despite a signed memorandum of understanding that stated PEI couldn't negotiate with anyone else. In essence, they claimed the government took the plans that they had been negotiating for years and took confidential information about how the system could work and tried to get someone else to do it instead. Those allegations haven't been proven in court. The PEI government and other defendants deny they did anything improper and are fighting the lawsuit. To this day, Maine sees all of this, the rumors, the securities case being cut out as a coordinated assault against him and his company. Unlike a small jurisdiction, these guys have superhuman powers. They have Department of Justice, they have legislation, they have everything at their fingertips. So they make up their own rules. In the years since, Wes Sheridan, the former finance minister, has said he didn't know who Paul Maines was or what work CMT had done in PEI. What he said at various times is pretty interesting. I mean, he, I think, you know, as of 2014, he was claiming that CMT had nothing to do with the PEI gambling file. You know, I, I would say that he, he sort of stated a lot of things in the legislature that were patently untrue. Uh, you know, he suggested that uh, CMT was not doing any actual business in PEI. Um, yeah, I mean, basically he denied any, any role that Paul Maines had in anything that, uh, that the provincial government was doing. Maines says that it's completely ridiculous. Besides all of their meetings, he says that Sheridan had other good reasons to know who he was. Here's the best part. I live in a community of, of 800 people. That's where my cottage was. I'm now here full time. He was my neighbor. You can't walk a dog without bumping into him. And he tries to pretend he has no idea who I am. By 2014, the whole sordid story started to make it into the Charlottetown Guardian and CBC PEI. And CMT hired a private investigator to put out a report. Wes Sheridan resigned before that report came out. And coincidentally, the day before the report dropped, Premier Robert Giz shocked the province and resigned, saying he wanted to spend more time with his family. I was given the privilege to serve as Premier almost eight years ago. Today, I'm announcing my intention to resign that position as soon as a new leader 
is chosen. When the Globe and Mail's investigation into e-gaming ran, the new premier, Wade McLaughlin, seemed upset that a national paper would put a PEI scandal on the front page. It is, of course, uh, of concern to me when uh, Prince Edward Island shows up on the, on the front page of the national paper, and uh, I would say that overall the article was written to prove the case that uh, we're too small to be real, and uh, my general view of the world is uh, that we have to keep reminding people that small can be big. But McLaughlin soon asked the Auditor General to investigate. In a scathing report released in 2016, the Auditor General found that the government didn't comply with legislation or policy throughout this whole story. Conflicts of interest were rife, and thousands of emails from three of the key players, including former Chief of Staff Chris LeClaire, had been deleted, though she says there was no evidence that this was done intentionally. Paul Jenkins, the man who allegedly brought CMT and the government together, has claimed that his email account was hacked and all of his emails were deleted. In the years since, Paul Maines and CMT have continued to try to sue the PEI government. Maines says this is to clear the company's reputation so they can pursue the financial hub project elsewhere. I played football back in the day. You want double team, you double team. You know, but you're in for a long day. I'm going to hammer you. I'm going to break your will. Maines has come to view PEI as a place where the playing field is tilted in favor of the powerful. But he has deep pockets, and he intends to see the suit through to the very end. They, they got they got superhuman powers. They got a minister of finance coming at you. They got a department of justice coming at you. They got their own media connections coming at you. It's nonstop, right? It, 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 when, when they, I'll give them credit. When they come at you hard, they come at you hard. And it's very difficult. Other people have tried to fight back, but it's expensive. And I alluded to before, they hope I run out of money. I did run out of money, but my friends won't. And that's where I'm very lucky and different than most. I have friends with very deep pockets, and they're going to see this through. They want to see justice. Because of e-gaming and other scandals, Islanders seem to be hungry for a new kind of politics. By and large, what the legacy of e-gaming is, is that, you know, I think people in Prince Edward Island are starting to get tired of the older way of doing politics, which is, you know, full of conflicts of interest, full of secrecy, uh, you know, very much kind of like a, an insider's club. PEI will hold an election late next year. And at the moment, the Green Party, which has one seat and has never held power, is leading in the polls. That's your episode of Commons. This episode was built on reporting by Teresa Wright and Stu Neepy of the Charlottetown Guardian, Carrie Campbell at CBC PEI, and Robin Doolittle and Jane Tabor of the Globe and Mail. We'll provide some links on our website. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Candleland Commons. That's C M N S. You can also email me at arshi at CandlelandShow.com. We'll be coming back with a few more corruption stories in January and February for you to enjoy. This episode was produced by myself, Jordan Cornish, and Kevin Sexton, who's also the managing editor of Canada Land. Our music is by Nathan Burley, and if you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash Canada Land.